0: This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association.
1: Hello and welcome to The Every Lawyer. Uh, today we take a second and closer look at the CBA Business and Human Rights Guide. I'm Julia tetrop Our guest today is Lloyd Lipset. Lloyd is an international human rights lawyer with over 20 years of experience working with leading companies, governments, national human rights institutions, civil society organizations, and indigenous peoples. He has developed a niche in the field of business and human rights, with a focus on implementing human rights due diligence processes, the HRDD, and Human Rights Impact Assessments, the HRIA. And you've done that in pretty uh, challenging contexts. In particular, Lloyd has led or participated in over 30 HRIAs and has conducted over 75 site visits to implement HRIA or HRDD processes around the world. Uh, So that's very impressive, I must say. He regularly advises senior leaders and managers in companies uh, and within governments and other organizations as well on how to manage the increasingly complex social expectations, legal requirements, and business risks associated with human rights. Finally, also co authored the CBA's Business and Human Rights Guide as if you were not busy enough already. <laughs> so, uh, you are underground right now. You're all over the globe. Uh, feels like you've been traveling all around Africa when we were trying to make this podcast. And uh, literally, you're building, to quote the BHR Guide, a more just and equitable future for all. Uh, no joke, I feel like you're really doing that. Uh, so welcome to The Every Lawyer, Lloyd Lipset. It's a real, real pleasure to have you this morning for us and this afternoon for you. Thank you. So uh, where are you right now?
0: I'm uh, sitting in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, which is my new home base in Eastern Africa for working uh, with with companies and other stakeholders on these issues around business and human rights.
1: And what got you started in the first place?
0: It's been throughout my my career. I um, even back as far as law school, I had the opportunity of working with the Canadian organization Rights and Democracy as a an intern, and so that was kind of nourished my interest and eventually a passion for international human rights work, and obviously that implies uh, international travel, which sound glamorous at first but over you know over a long long stretch it is something to to manage and can be challenging on uh on a person but yeah i've been traveling for 25 years uh, and a lot here to to africa so it's nice actually to have a for once a base and not just be flying in and
1: And And you mentioned also the fact that you enjoy working with people. So do you get to be like with the communities more or is it more the people, you mean your colleagues or both?
0: Um, You mentioned in the introduction, you know, human rights impact assessment, human rights due diligence. Um, Human rights impact assessments tend to be a little bit more like a come in as a third party and you're doing interviews with different people affected by projects. So Company people, government people, community people, workers, but when you're doing human rights due diligence, there's a bit more of an emphasis on capacity building and that can be on both sides. It can be capacity building with communities or indigenous people on how they can interact with uh with big projects, or it can be more capacity building with managers and different departments in a big company about how they have to. Implement their their human rights responsibilities. So, I'd say it's a, you know it's a combination of uh, interviewing and uh, engaging with the quote affected um, people or affected stakeholders, so workers and community members, and with a big focus on vulnerable groups. Um, and then um, engaging with and um, building capacity and helping. Um, companies put in place management systems that are are respectful of their their human rights uh, responsibilities.
1: Okay, okay, I I find it very interesting. I mean, it really goes uh, close to to my heart because I'm working in human rights, and I, th- I find your job very very impressive. Um, so. Can you tell us a little bit more how serious are the human rights challenges that can arise with Canadian multinational extractive companies like oil and gas and mining?
0: Yeah, I mean, the. I'll talk first about kind of how the challenges are in terms of when there are allegations or negative impacts on people's human rights in faraway places. There are challenges in terms of reputation. You know, nobody wants to wake up and have their company name in the Globe and Mail or La Presse or whatever. Um, so there's, you know, reputational media is paying a lot more attention to this and media with social media circulates quickly. There's a kind of a reputational angle. There's a legal angle. We've seen some lawsuits in Canada about, uh, the conduct of Canadian extractive companies overseas and those have gone all the way up to the Supreme Court, which has said, you know, we are actually going to hear cases in Canada about the conduct of uh, companies overbroad under certain circumstances. But, uh, you know, the door is open a bit there. And then also the investors are paying attention to this as well. So that's an interesting angle that we're seeing more and more that shareholders investors, financial institutions are are really paying attention to this because they have reputations of their own to, to uphold and standards of their own. So there's a lot of uh, different pressures or consequences. I'd say there's pressures to get it right that are more and more clear, and there are consequences more and more when you get it wrong. The supply chain is a huge focus. So it's not just the Conduct of the company itself, but it can be its contractors, its suppliers and often in these countries abroad you may be also having in some sort of partnership with governments which may not have the greatest track record on on human rights. so there it's that linkage or connection to the conduct of third parties that also is a, a real source of risk and uh, potential impact. And around the range of issues, when you take a human rights lens, it's, it's broad, right? It, you know, human rights covers workers' rights, working conditions. It covers community related issues, land related issues, security. Um, so there's a really wide range of, uh, broad issues that can be, come human rights impacts or allegations if, uh, if you, you do things wrong. And the framework of business and human rights has given, you know, a, a tool and a language for affected people and other stakeholders to 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 address those issues.
1: I always feel like at least that oil and gas and mining are like the really the bad the bad guys or the worst one. Is it true uh, in like in all this um, this world of business and human rights? Are they really the worst?
0: I don't I don't think I don't think that's necessarily. Fair, but there you can understand why they have been under attention because these are massive projects that have very visible impacts, and the the track record of those industries in the past has not always been very great, whether it be in terms of impacts on just the environment, the community, etc, but also some of the 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 connections with different governments and so on so you You can understand why they, their industries are under the spotlight. But because of that spotlight, they also, some of the, the major international companies have the most, the strongest policies and the strongest attention. They have a lot of, they have a lot of pressure on them. Um, so in terms of good performers, there are some good ones there. I think, you know, other resource intensive industries whether it be agriculture renewable sectors because we like to think about renewables as good very good from 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 an environment perspective it's not oil right and uh, um, so oil is particularly under the spotlight because not just of human rights but also environmental climate change issues and we like to think about renewables but renewables also take land they also have impacts on communities there's many of the same issues that you get with mining and oil and gas that are in renewables and i think there's more awareness that they also can have human rights consequences yeah and the supply chain angle really you know that coming back to any all sorts of consumer goods to the food we eat and agriculture there's a lot of uh, attention there as well and i think some of those industries that may not have been in the human rights spotlight to date may actually have further to go because they haven't been subject to so many pressures in the past.
1: And, uh, you have, uh, led or you participated as I said in over 30 human rights impact assessment and you conducted over 75 site visits to implement human rights impact assessments or a human rights due diligence processes around the world as you can see we've done our research <laughs> uh, but could you uh, talk us a little bit about uh, the processes of both because you did make a difference uh, before but I would like just uh, to understand better what's the difference between the two of them and and how effective you feel uh, they are?
0: So the it's a, those are good to put those two questions together because kind of one leads to the, the... Where this started from is human rights impact assessments are a bit... I like to call them the younger cousin or sister of environmental and social impact assessments. So they're processes that are designed to anticipate evaluate the impacts either actual or potential that a business or a project it could be even applied to a government program that may have effect on on people and you know and to then develop some recommendations about mitigation or management measures to prevent or minimize those impacts it's very much from a human rights perspective We're focusing primarily on minimizing or reducing or avoiding harms on people. To some degree, you could also think about trying to maximize positive outcomes, but the focus tends to be on, you know, minimizing or avoiding the negative impacts on on people's human rights. But the way the practice evolved with human rights impact assessment tends to be quite an in-depth study. It's a, you know, it's a long-term I don't want to say just a research process, but there's a lot of engagement with the different stakeholder groups to try and identify what are the key issues? Have there actually been some impacts? What is the company, if it's about a company, what's the company doing? What's good about it? Where are their gaps? Uh, what needs to be improved, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the practice is those studies take a long time. Um, and, they don't always have the intended results in terms of follow-up action. So there's a question mark about how effective are human rights impact assessments. And I've worked on ones that have been more effective and others that have been less effective. When you approach this from a human rights due diligence uh, angle, um, human rights due diligence is defined as more of an ongoing process in which in assessing impacts or risks is just one step in a process and after that you need to integrate and act upon the findings of the assessment you need to monitor and track the effectiveness of those actions and you need to communicate and that cycle of ongoing human rights due diligence was spelled out in the UN guiding principles on business and human rights which interestingly doesn't say anywhere that companies have to do human rights impact assessments. That was just kind of a, a thing that some organizations and some groups, a tool that they promoted. And certainly it's relevant to human rights due diligence, but it's not the actual requirement. And also we see in uh, particularly Europe, um, these uh, movement towards mandatory human rights due diligence legislation, over there. And again, it's mandatory human rights due diligence, not mandatory human rights impact assessment. So, as that kind of trend has gone, I've started to frame my work more as human rights due diligence, although my specialty is to help with that first step of assessing the impact. So, it's still relevant, it's still part of it, but I like that broader framing because it does imply that once the assessment is done, the work isn't done. it's just actually starting because then you need to, I like the simplest way of saying the integration acting. The company needs to develop an action plan. Okay. So let's work on your action plan and then let's track your action plan and then help you communicate with your externally and with your affected stakeholders. What are your actions and where, what are, where are you trying to go with this? So it makes, it helps to make that transition from a study that could go onto a shelf into something that's more dynamic and gets integrated into the business.
1: Yeah. So do you, usually do you have both? Uh, like, do you start with an assessment and then you do the due diligence?
0: The The assessment phase is, you know, a logical place to start the the due diligence process because you got to know what are your priorities, where are your, your gaps, where are your biggest risks in terms of uh, impacts on people. Um, so the assessment is itself part of human rights due diligence, but it also leads to further due diligence. So sometimes you call it, you know, a human rights due diligence assessment, or you can call it still a human rights impact assessment, but the, the outcome needs to be recommendations for ongoing due diligence. And I think the other important piece of uh, the framing is when you're doing a human rights impact assessment the focus is a lot on who are the assessors and it's like you know independent experts who are coming in whereas human rights due diligence is more about building the capacity of the company to assume its responsibilities for this um so the focus that you actually in the end once the report or the study is done is more on what are you as the company going to do with this and how are you going to take it forward so it it shifts a little bit the um the the attention from the assessor to the actual company as as the person or the entity that needs to 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 implement this.
1: You mentioned the uh, 2011 UN guiding principle on the business and human rights. I've read it a little bit. I've worked a little bit on this, but I'd like to have your your take on it. Like, do you feel that the UN GPs on the business and human rights? Uh, is being applied and uh, has been adopted internationally or it's more like a beautiful principle that uh, a bit up in the air?
0: I think, you know, in terms of international human rights instruments, it has made a lot of progress in relatively short time, just over 10 years, and it has influenced other multilateral policies, particularly around the lenders. So, you know, it's integrated into other codes and policies for a responsible business enterprise. There's been a lot of uptake of them by individual companies, but also by industry associations. So I think they've been very effective on the, the policy level. And I don't think anyone would contest that they're the key reference when it comes to this business and human rights piece. So I think they've done their work there. Um, you see a lot of work because they are, at a pretty high level their guiding principles as the title says so there's a lot of work around providing additional guidance that is more industry specific or on certain components of the guiding principle that there's more you know and that's one of the things i get asked though you know help companies with guidance for their their operations how do you you know really operationalize this for a mining site in country x because it's you know these are high level principles. What does that mean in practice on the ground? So helping to translate that there's uh there is work to be done, but um I think, you know, industry associations and companies that have multiple sites are helping to do that through their, their, their procedures and so on. So on the one hand to be very positive and optimistic, it has made huge strides in a relatively short period of time. Um, Quite remarkable. However, there is a however part. It is not the majority of companies or countries around the world that are on the business and human rights bandwagon. You know, there are big areas of the world with powerful economic interests that are not really uh, taking these on board. The late John Ruggie a Canadian who was the author of the the guiding principles he said on the 10 year anniversary of the guiding principles he was you know remarking on the progress but he said the guiding principles are relevant to 40% of the world's economy we still have 60% to go and i think that does help to put it in in context and you know russia china middle east you know there are there are areas that the majority of companies, I don't want to say all of them, but the majority probably aren't picking up the guiding principles uh, at breakfast.
1: Yeah, no, no, I don't think so. They like the guiding what? I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not quite sure. But I mean, but in Canada, for instance, so I know we we follow them, and but we have other tools because you mentioned we need sometimes some companies they need some guidance. I mean, now we do have the BHR guide thanks to the CBA, but do we have other tools like in the law? Do we have, for instance, you mentioned you mentioned the HR assessment, the due diligence? Do we have this in our legislation in Canada to you know force companies to do it? Canada is funny. I
0: mean, um, with the, we've promoted these standards, particularly for the extractive sector, but again, in a kind of a voluntary way. Um, but the attention now we have the ombudsperson for responsible enterprise that's pushing at other sectors like, uh, the apparel sector and so on around a set of standards that would include the UN guiding principles. But in terms of legislation, not yet. I know there are some legislative initiatives around supply chain due diligence, whether that takes the form of a a kind of a broader mandatory human rights due diligence law or a more targeted one around modern slavery. There are different kind of models out there and different proposals that have been brought forward. But Canada is... Not as far ahead as say some of the European countries on on these things, and so you see more it at the industry level and individual companies that are taking leadership on this and to the point of the c b a guidance, I think this is one of the things where lawyers can play a role in advising companies that these standards are important, they're important for whether it be legal, financial reputational reasons and the the law the soft law is hardening globally so it would be good advice to companies to get a bit ahead of the curve on this because it will come
1: but actually i'd like to know how does it work like does a company calls you uh, when they want to do an assessment and, and and if so why did they decide to do that is it because for, for profit you you mentioned sometimes reputation but like what's the reasons to do that
0: it has evolved at the beginning it was holy crap Holy crap. Our company is in the Globe and Mail, or we've been called to go in front of parliamentary committee to answer questions about human rights. It's usually was negative that we have an allegation about something bad that's happened at our site somewhere uh, far away. And, um, and that was the motivation and we need to respond to this. And so one of the tools that has been suggested to us is to do a human rights impact assessment. That would be a way for us to address this in a hopefully in a, a responsible manner. So that was the kind of the first wave. The second wave was companies that had been through those holy crap moments had actually started to put in strong policies to say when we start a new operation, we're going to do a human rights impact assessment at the beginning, so that we can put in place the system so that we can demonstrate that we're doing uh, you know what what we're required to do under human rights standards, so the next kind of series of work that I did was more a bit more proactive, but it you know, tended to be from companies that had some time in their past had a you know a t- tougher human rights incident and had learned their lesson and put in place appropriate policy framework around uh, managing that going forward. The third wave, which is really seen in the last few years, is pushes it forward even a little bit further. It's the investors, the banks. The banks are now saying, we're not going to lend you the money to build your pipeline, or we're not going to lend the money to build your mines. And these are very expensive things to build. If you don't do your human rights due diligence, so there's a lot of incentives that are coming from the lenders. And frankly, it's very effective because the person that's standing between you and the hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars you need to, to build a, a major infrastructure project or extractive project, they, they matter. And you're seeing this. It's a very important source of leverage and getting Projects and and companies to be quite proactive, and what's great about for me as a practitioner is it's so much easier and more constructive to come in in advance and be trying to anticipate and address things. It's such an easier conversation to have when we're talking about human rights impacts in a hypothetical way than when you come in after and there are allegations of really serious things happening. And there's, there's, there's conflict and there's tension between the company and the community or the workforce. And that can be very difficult. And also even to find out what really happened because, you know, it's, it's polarized. So it's, um, it's much better when you're looking forward than looking backwards.
1: Yeah. And, and why the bank, why, why the banks decide now to do that reputation again?
0: Yeah, I think reputation comes, comes into it and the, the, NGOs, civil society organizations have have been have been clever about saying you know follow the money, and we actually we can put more pressure on a bank than we can necessarily on a government, and so the the NGOs have been strategic about lobbying the the financial sector on human rights in general, but also on specific projects that they feel are are troublesome. But I think also at the international level, that within these different frameworks, there's been a a slow realization that banks are businesses themselves and they have human rights responsibilities. So they've also come along in terms of developing their own policies and risk assessments and so on. And when they apply these filters from a a risk-based perspective, you're going to get extractive industry project in a developing country that doesn't have strong governance or rule of law, that's going to usually get flagged. So there's going to be attention. If we're going to lend money in this context, there's an elevated risk around human rights and therefore we must do X, Y, Z.
1: It it makes me think when we talk about public international law nowadays, we realize that it's not only states, it's also, well, humans for sure. But also, I mean, we have new actors coming in like banks and businesses. And I think that's one of the examples of the great impacts of that is that public international law is getting really, it's coming, it's, it's really up and coming. There's more and more impacts that i feel like we have internationally it's very great i love to hear that and i mean it's really a positive talk today i I love it and to continue with that i'd like to ask you like do you have good without naming names but just uh some some businesses you've worked with and that you've seen a great accomplishment
0: yeah i mean there's some of the really big i've worked with the the biggest you know oil and gas mining companies and the world. These aren't necessarily Canadian companies anymore, but, you know, international ones. And I've gone with them from early days when they were putting in place their policies around human rights assessment, and then seeing them play out more proactively on the ground. Um, and it's, I think, so from that way to see a big company put in place a a, a robust policy and procedure that kind of has legs over time to when they develop new projects that human rights is part of the, I don't want to say DNA, but kind of uh, into the building that in right at the beginning of the process that's rewarding from a kind of a systems piece. But the most rewarding piece is when you see them, the the outcomes on, on people, when they have proactive initiatives with their workforce when they, for instance, here in Tanzania, I recently participated with a, a big uh, extractive project that signed a, uh, be a bit the equivalent of an impact benefit agreement with indigenous peoples in, in Tanzania when these are not recognized as such by the government. And it was a very positive occasion because the the traditional leaders of these Indigenous groups are saying this is, you know, no other company, not even the government consults us like this. And this is a great precedent for us in Tanzania. Those are the those are the feel good moments. And the other piece I think that is rewarding is also sometimes working with smaller companies. And in the mining sector, some of the Canadian companies I've worked with are smaller ones, and they're more nimble. You know, and so when they kind of pick up the, the human rights piece, you're often talking immediately to the board of directors and the, the CEO. And if they get that in their head, um, they can act on things very quickly and efficiently, more so than a big, massive multinational company. And so sometimes that's really rewarding to work with a smaller, more nimble company that once they get it, they can run with it quick. And then the final thing I'd say is, you know, to to do this work, I've tried to also work with other, you know, on other sides of the equation. So I have done work with government, I've done work with multilaterals, I've done work with uh, Indigenous communities uh, in Canada. And that can also be very rewarding, particularly, I think, about uh, when working with Indigenous communities is helping to get them a seat at the table. In, and give them a voice in in projects that are, you know, maybe otherwise a little bit overwhelming. So um, that, that also can be a rewarding piece. And it helps to keep you honest in the sense that you can see things on both sides of the, the equation.
1: Definitely. And I love that you mentioned Indigenous people because they are always probably the, one of the first people to be impacted. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, um, I was about to to ask you about a quote that we have, and I would like to have your view on it because I feel like this is the opposite of what you've been telling me. But uh, the CBA BHR guide quotes a report from uh, July 2018, a report of the UNGA, the General Assembly. Business lawyers, both in-house counsel and external firms, have a unique position for shaping the path an enterprise may take. So that is basically what you were saying and I think you would agree with that. But then it also says that business lawyers are not meeting that expectation. Often they are seen as one of the main obstacles to adopting effective human rights due diligence with a traditional narrow focus on legal risks. And then the report called for a change in mindset among mainstream business lawyers which You are obviously not. Um, Would you agree with that, uh, this quote? You know, I think,
0: of course, there's a a grain of truth in that. Um, But I think things are, are evolving. And, you know, many, I think, business lawyers will be aware of the kind of international trends around whether you call it ESG or CSR or whatever name you give it. I think people can see that these frameworks are evolving Perhaps, you know, more than even just a few years ago, this is gathering momentum. But in the worst cases, bringing an overly, let's call it traditional legal focus on this can have a negative effect on companies doing good human rights due diligence because of a few factors. I think one is good, good due diligence. Is predicated on good stakeholder engagement. And there may be a fear of engaging with affected stakeholders or critical NGOs for legal or other, you know, reasons. Um, they can feel that that may be compromising and it's better just to kind of zip it because if we stick our, our neck, our head up, we're going to, we might, we might get ourselves in more trouble and that kind of attitude that's sometimes driven by by lawyers is against kind of the the fundamental way of doing good due diligence which is through engagement and, and dialogue the other area where i see lawyers can be a bit of a hang up is when companies have negative impacts they they have a responsibility to provide remedy and the un guiding principles were very helpful in framing that, that, you know, they they deliberately chose to have kind of soft language to accept that companies will have impacts, but part of your responsibility then is to provide remedy, whether you do that through an in-house process like a grievance mechanism or through other processes, government or otherwise, you need to provide remedy. And sometimes I find when the lawyers get involved, they, they're fearing a big lawsuit. And so they won't admit they won't admit admit that we've done something wrong and that we can provide remedy in an effective way and so this whole part of remedy gets seen through a lawyer's eyes, which is all about you know big lawsuit and expensive and all of this, whereas remedy should be something that for many cases could be resolved much more through mediation and dialogue at the the operational level. And then you just move on, and some yeah, getting the lawyers involved. Sometimes they um, they they put the brakes on there. So I think those are a couple of areas where I guess learning about uh, the the spirit of and the the requirements of due diligence will be helpful, and also the experience that companies that have done good human rights due diligence have gotten into less legal trouble than the ones that don't. So I think also the practice out there shows that some of these risks that are maybe, or fears from a legal perspective, might be overblown in terms of how they actually play out on the ground. I, I honestly don't know what the, the pressure points are, but the strongest one that I'm seeing is the supply chain angle. So as just as an example... I'm going over to to DRC for a Chinese company. It's first time I've ever been hired by a Chinese company. And the pressure is, is supply chain. And they want to have their supply chain certified. And the certification standards now have human rights in it. And so if they want to sell their cobalt to Tesla to make nice electric cars, and, um, then they need to have, uh, do human rights due diligence. So I think, and I th- you know, whatever people will say about, um, Chinese companies, they're shrewd business people. And so I think if this, there's a business case for it, I think with, you know, that, and the same might go for other areas is if we don't make this into overly rhetorical, uh human rights stuff that can easily get into geopolitical stuff where you don't want to go with the company um is but making the business case for them in a way that that understands then probably actually they'll they'll do it so that's but i'm i'm going to figure out through this my next engagements what is the each company has its own nuance on the business case right so Figuring out how to articulate uh, a non-political business case to com- companies from different parts of the world, I think that's part of the the solution and supply chain obviously is a great great entry point. and it's a good example of where you know the the UN guiding principles have crept in into these certification standards for different mineral supply chains. And that's a, a great example of how they've kind of done their done their work and uh, and so we, you know we're not necessarily talking about u n guiding principles, but when you read the human rights section of this certification thing it's cut and paste from the u n guiding principles so it but it's now such and such uh, mineral standard
1: do lawyers could i uh, mean Check the CBA BHR guides. Do you have like some guidance on that as well? I'm sure you do. Uh, like, on uh, you know, this what you just said that due diligence actually might be a, a better way to avoid those risks. Should they are you like, I'm trying to, I'm doing some, uh, <laughs> some PR, <laughs> exactly PR here. You're, yeah, well, yes, we don't bother, we don't create anymore, we just copy paste what's already been done. Well, I think,
0: I think the guide is was. Done quite deliberately in a way that you know there are some of the core concepts in there around human rights due diligence. Also, there's a lot of great references for people that want to know more about this or that element. It also provides a good overview of the international and domestic frameworks, uh laws and policies that are contributing to this overall trend in the the direction of business and human rights. And then it has some uh, kind of more practical examples or areas around specific areas of, uh, due diligence on specific human rights issues that can be, I guess, illustrative of the, the, the overall approach to due diligence, but it needs to also touch down in terms of specific human rights issues. So it's, I hope the, the, the guide is, is useful for people, perhaps as an entry point. And, but there's lots of other guidance out there and there's a lot of references and links in the guidance for people that are interested in learning more.
1: Thank you so much. I feel like it's, it's been a pleasure and honestly, I've learned a lot and you are very good teacher, a really good mentor. I don't know if you do do that often, but really I've learned it's, it's, it has been very, very clear. So thank you, Lloyd, for taking the time uh, with us this morning and this afternoon for you. I feel like you're one of the lucky ones to really get to see the impact of what you're doing uh, really concretely, which is very great. Well,
0: I mean, uh, I guess a, a part of it is saying that the, the work is a, an attempt, a small contribution to try and make these high-minded principles uh real on the ground. For me, that's really where I'm at in my career is trying to translate these, you know, the, these laws and policies into practice on the ground. And also to build capacity of Africans, because, you know, as a Canadian, I've come over here hundreds of times to Africa um with you know a law background etc um and to to be there as a consultant and advisor but then I go back home. Uh and then I think part of the this next phase of of my career is also trying to build a capacity of young African professionals so that they can do this work and uh them themselves and have African solutions for, for Africans. Um, and I think, you know, human rights is supposed to be universal. It's great that us as Canadians, we can contribute to that. But ultimately, if this is going to have, have legs, it needs to be, um, ingrained in the companies and the people over here. So, um, I want to spend more time focusing on, uh, sort of capacity building mentorship, uh, on this side of the pond.
1: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Every Lawyer. Please feel free to hit subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. If you would like to comment on anything you've heard in this podcast, please contact us directly via cba.org.